Welcome to 77 Minutes, a Dallas Mavericks podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network, the only Mavericks podcast that is drinking wine in a hotel room in the late hours of Monday evening here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm Tim Cato. I write and talk about the Mavericks, and we've got Sam Amick, my colleague, who I've written a couple stories with. Um, You might remember one or two of them. We're going to talk about the Game 1 defeat for the Mavericks. They lost 121-114. They're down 1-0 in the series. I think there was some interesting things we learned. I think there was a couple surprises. Uh, some of my predictions for the series were probably overcomplicating what actually happened in Game 1 a little bit. But let's just start with the overall vibe. You know, Sam, you were there. You were there sitting next to me. What would you think of the game? Tim, great to see you. Uh, the wine has not been touched. It's just sitting next to me. I mean, not yet. For the record. Yeah. The Pringles have definitely been touched. This is the luxurious life of sports writers. Appreciate you having me. This was a first impressions game for me. Um, I've not seen these two teams in a while. And, you know, the Mavs, I was going to throw it to you this way. If, if I told you that Luca, you know, dropped 45 on 15 of 30 shooting, you know, uh, even without any context, you'd probably feel pretty good about the idea of the Mavs pulling this thing out. And it never felt like a game at all. I mean, they were down double digits early. I don't really lend much credence to the late push other than Suns, Malays, and and Dallas, to their credit, competing. But it never felt like there was going to be a shocking comeback. So, you know, I don't know where you want to start. But outside looking in, as somebody who had marveled at, you know, some of the Jalen Brunson games and the Utah series – and, you know, the Spencer Dinwiddie fit late in the regular season and, and just kind of the narrative around this Mavs team. I did not expect it to be kind of Luka and the Misfits with everybody other than Maxi Kleba, you know, really not giving him much. Yeah, let's start with Luka. Let's I think I think that's a good place to start. Um, I, I agree. You know, he was he was 45, 12 and eight. And it felt like he was at best, you know, just kind of himself. You know, he wasn't like a some mega version of himself. He wasn't some transcendent star. He dropped a casual forty-five, like a a forty-five points that was at times not even noticeable as like didn't even feel like a forty-five point game. Now, I think the reason that was happening for the most part is that Phoenix didn't send help at him pretty much the entire game. They very like they accepted switches, mm-hmm. you know, especially if it was a small, small pick and roll. You saw a lot of, you know, bridges started on him. But if if Luca called up Chris Paul's man, Chris Paul would just hop on over. Right. Against Aiton, Aiton was sitting back and drop coverage. And what Luca would do is he would drive into the paint, kind of isolate himself on Aiton, and then pull back out and run that Aiton, you know, isolation. And so, you know, in that context, yeah, it makes sense that Luca was taking all these shots. He wasn't you know, selfish. It's that, you know, Phoenix wasn't helping off his teammates and Luca and one-on-one coverage is the best option that Dallas has in the second half. We saw a little bit more helping. Um, Phoenix also just has the ability to help without help. Like bridges is someone bridges is ridiculous. Like bridges can cheat off his man to the point that he almost is doubling Luca or almost is doubling a player and then get back. You know, I thought that the block of the three-pointer of Reggie Bullock in the corner, nobody makes that play. Nobody Bullock gets block. back in time. Right. That, that and, and he did. 
He does. He lives in the middle. Yeah. To your point, it's fun to watch because, you know, you mentioned earlier the switches with Chris Paul. So Chris would be out there on an island against Luka, which is fine. Chris, even though he's obviously small, is a hell of a defender. But Bridges would float. He would just sit there and and monitor the corner. But he has, you know, it takes him so little time to get, you know, to cover 15 feet um, that it is fun to watch. And Devin Booker postgame slid in a little, you know, not so subtle shot about how this is why Mikhail should have been defensive player of the year. You know, they obviously thought that he was worthy of that award. And you see it tonight. And, and to your point about Luca, Tim, it's, you know, I just look back at it. You know, the Mavs are down 20 to six right out the gate. You know, I, I know coaches like to always talk about how, you know, games aren't always lost at the end. And this is one where for me, it felt like it was lost in the first six minutes. And not only, okay, Luca eventually gets his, but in those first six minutes, there was zero rhythm on the Dallas side. And Luca was having a hell of a time figuring out what he wanted to do against that Bridges Paul one two punch, and nobody else got going. And before you know it, they're kind of you know they're fighting uphill. Yeah, I wonder if he was almost even. Uphill. Yeah, wrong, yes. I wonder if he was almost even taken aback by Bridges just immediately starting on him. Um, you when I said that you know some of my predictions probably overcomplicated things. I kept going on about how, you know, I thought Bridges might start on Brunson. I thought they might have, you know, this whole pick and roll scheme for, for Luca. No, no. Phoenix was just like, Hey, we've got our best defender. He's going to guard him. You know, he's going to guard their best offensive player. Again, you know, it, it's more complicated than that. It wasn't, it wasn't the Luca on Bridges show for most of the game because Luca's smart. You know, he's not, he's not isolating on that, but I agree that it, it was, it was really impressive the way that. You know, someone on the Mavericks who I was talking to before the game described Bridges and also in a way Chris Paul, uh, basically as free safeties. You know, you're really right in the way that they float, that, that they, they're, they just know where to be. They, they kind of read what a, a, you know, the, the opponent is trying to do. And they're, because they're able to read so many steps ahead, uh, so many times. I I think there was like three turnovers on the Mavs first six possessions or so. Yeah. And, it's remarkable. They finished with uh with eight. They finished with eight turnovers. But having three or four right away. within the first six minutes when Phoenix made that big run, yeah, that felt, was crucial. And it felt you and I talked after the game about the Suns fans and the, the mood and the crowd. And by the end, it felt underwhelming. But in the first quarter, that place was popping. And the Suns made that happen. It felt like, you know, not to go too macro, but it felt like this is a Phoenix team that was in the finals last year, and their fans are happy that they survived the first round against New Orleans. And now it feels like, you know, they're back on track for this mission because they are determined and confident that they are going to win the West and, and try to win the whole thing. So within all that stuff, I think we also got to highlight Devin Booker a little bit. You know, he sits over there on the wing, and and whether it's Jalen Brunson or Dinwiddie, you know, defensively, Devin Booker continues to be – underrated uh, by everybody other than Rudy Gobert, who made that infamous comment about how a couple uh, weeks ago about how, you know, Devin, oh, I'm botching it, about how Devin was locked in defensively. People took it as shade towards Donovan Mitchell. But Devin is really strong on that end. I asked somebody on the Mavs side before the game who the Suns' second best perimeter defender was. And right away, the answer was, if Devin's healthy, it's him. So um, they're just tough. This is different than the Jazz team that, as we know, 
uh, you know, it's it's Rudy Gobert surrounded by a, a bunch of guys who have a hard time stopping the ball, and and Phoenix is different. Yeah, I noticed a couple possessions. Uh, I think it was Luca once. In another instance, it was uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. They had Devin Booker guarding them, and they like sought out a switch, not to like campaign. They're getting switches onto Cam Johnson. And Cam Johnson, I think, broadly has a reputation as a better defender than Devin Booker. Clearly, they didn't feel that way. Like they they were seeking out this a taller, more physical guy who they felt they would have more success on. I thought that was like that struck me in that moment. And Devin gets in the mud, man. I kind of love the fact that he's not only a two way player now at this point in his career, but he's man, especially in, in the playoffs, he is. Chippy is all get out. He talks a lot of shit, for lack of a better way. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on your podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we talk a lot of shit on this podcast yeah. as well. And I, I, we need like an unfiltered. If if the Suns end up meeting the Warriors in the conference finals, I need like a Draymond, Devin, you know, both sides unfiltered, wired Mike segment because there's a lot of that going on. But it speaks to his, I think, his competitiveness and and just how invested he is. So you know, he's hell of a, a player on both ends. I think we both agree that the small ball at the end of the game, it's worth looking at more. You know, clearly Dallas was successful. It didn't feel like a cure-all. It didn't feel like that solved the Suns as much as the Suns, you know, stepped off the gas just a little bit. And, and, you know, you can say stepped off the gas. You can say they just missed shots they should have made. Like, I don't know what to do when they miss, you know, they're shooting great all game. But they miss some wide open threes. And, you know, I don't know if stepping off the gas means that you miss open threes. Maybe they just miss them. But I thought they missed some shots that they should make late in the game. And that, you know, maybe there's some benefit to that small ball lineup. You know, it's certainly something they got to look at more. It didn't strike me as the thing, this the lineup that's going to swing this series. So I will take your word for it, Tim, because full disclosure, you know, I was... That guy, <laughs> that media member who was so convinced the game was over that I was down a rabbit hole on the internet doing kind of formulating what I might write for the night. I was looking up, uh, I guess maybe a little preview for my column that'll be on the website. I was looking up old stories about the Spurs and Greg Popovich back in 2013 talked about how when the Spurs lost to the Heat in game seven of the finals, 95 88, Ray Allen. The, uh, the yellow tape game where we thought it was over and Ray saves the day and the Spurs lose. They carried that finals loss with them the entire following year. And what always struck me was that from pop on down, they talked about the cognizant choice to let it hurt and to kind of pour salt in their own wounds, if that makes sense. And so I kind of was wondering if there were any parallels to these sons. You know, Monty Williams comes from the Spurs program. Post game, he actually dropped an old pop quote referencing appropriate fear of the Mavs. So I was going big picture and uh, and, and assuming the Suns were going to win when the small ball lineup was uh, was happening. But uh, but I will take your words for it. So this is just more proof that the national media hates the Mavericks. So <laughs> the Mavs did not have a chance at finishing this game. <laughs> Fun fact for you, uh, I find this kind of funny too. The Mavs went in also feeling like. You know, they needed, I know this is Captain Obvious, but they needed to be a leading after three quarters. And I say that because the Suns are now 51-0 and 0 this season 
when they are leading entering the fourth quarter. 47 of those games in the regular season, four now in the playoffs. And so I kept thinking about that during the game. And as they're down, you know, what was the largest in the third quarter? I think it was 19, something like that. So, yes, came far short of their goal of leading going into the fourth. But even that speaks to like, like, damn, even if you have a game, you know, where it's tight. I mean, these Suns are very good late and it's going to be tough for the Mavs. I mean, I guess I'll throw it back to you this way. Like, I know it's only a game, but is this going to be a series? I mean, just that, that 51 and 0 status career. I don't know if there's anything I've done 51 times successfully <laughs> like all 51 times it was not the intro to this podcast you, you was, were over two <laughs> man that was bad i i'm usually good at that too but not but not un not 100 percent. i think the mavericks 77 minutes tonight by the way <laughs> he might have to if they're if, if if he could i think this might be a series um i think there's a few things dallas can do and I think that, you know, I, I didn't think they were bad defensively. Uh, the Mavericks talked about how they needed to be better. Uh, there's an interesting Maxi Kleba quote, uh, which is going to be my piece on Tuesday. Um, I haven't transcribed it yet, but I remember, you know, just listening to him say it. You know, he was really describing just the choices that they had to make, but also how they weren't recognizing switches fast enough sometimes. Uh, he was specifically talking about Aiton, and that's that's really hard. Like if it's if it's Chris Paul Aiton, like you can't give mid range space to either player, which is usually the way that you play a pick and roll. You know that you can give a little bit, you know, in that eighteen, like fifteen to eighteen foot range, or that you know ten to fourteen foot range for the big man. That's right where those guys hit shots, right. and it is so tricky to guard them and. You know, and and for that reason, you know, uh, the Mavericks may go even switchier. Uh, you know, I I think if there was something from that small ball lineup that was effective, it was that completely fluid five out switching. Um, and honestly, it almost bothered Aiton a little bit. I thought, you know, Dorian Finney Smith out of out of the three quote unquote centers who played for Dallas, Dorian Finney Smith was the best one. Yeah. He was the one who really really got up underneath Aiton. And did a decent job denying the ball to him and not just giving him comfortable looks in comfortable spots. So if there is again, I, I'm not I'm not sold on the small ball lineup being the perfect solution. But I do think it's something they're gonna go to a lot sooner. Um I wonder if I I, I might start Maxi in game two over Dwight Powell. I thought this was I thought this might have been more of a Dwight Powell series, but I just I didn't see it, especially with the way that Aiton could just really push him around. So, I think there's some things that Dallas will do. Um, I would start Boban, personally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I support embracing the chaos. So, I mean, it would make things fun. I, I Listen, I'm more than happy to jump back on the 77-minute pod on after game two and poke fun at myself. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like this will be a series to me. It feel, Now, health with, you know, notwithstanding – it feels like the Suns. I mean, I wrote this a few weeks ago. The Suns did not, in my opinion, get enough national or, you know, anywhere respect during the season based on what they did and taking into account historical context. When you are up nine games on the second best team in the NBA during the regular season, like the, the, you know, the, uh, history is in your favor. 
I mean, this is an incredibly dominant Suns team. They should be far and away the title front runner. And so in the first round, when they lose Devin Booker, that was obviously a game changer and the kind of thing that opened the door for the Pelicans with all that energy they have with Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum and Herb Jones and Jose Alvarado. And I think there was a uniqueness to that first round matchup that tonight after game one of this one, it, it feels like that was a bit of an outlier and that, you know, that this might be a, a breezier series for the Suns. I making all your listeners very unhappy right now. No, no, I'm stalling because I reluctantly agree with you. Um, I think that there's like three big challenges that Phoenix poses and the Mavs best solution to each one just kind of leads right into, right into the next one. Okay. You can't handle Aiton. Let's go completely switchy and small and the, our most mobile players, Doreen Finney Smith. Okay. That's, that might slow down Aiton from scoring from his spots, but it's going to give up a bunch of offensive rebounds. We saw that happen in the fourth quarter. We saw that happen in the third quarter. All right, so you put a bigger body in there. Uh, it can't be Dwight Powell. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't that effective at that. You know, you you put a Maxi Kleba. Is he is he going to shoot five of eight again? What was it? Yeah, five of eight. Uh, maybe, probably not. You know, like the Mavericks had a forty one percent shooting night. You know, the reason that you play Maxi is to get a lot of shooting on the court. Uh, the Mavericks shot about as well as you can expect. You know, maybe they have a really outlier shooting night where they hit half of their threes, but you know, they took more threes and they made more threes than Phoenix and that still wasn't enough. All right. So you shift to the next look. What, what is the next look, you know, uh, just better defensive execution all around. Um, like hope that Phoenix makes fewer mid rangers. They might, you know, like, like I think that they need a good shooting night and a bad, like against a bad shooting night to, you know, from what I saw to, to really have a, have a clean victory in this series. I, right. you know, I think they can muck it up. Um, I think they can slow the tempo down. Phoenix was really successful, uh, just pushing it. Dallas usually averages like a 90 pace. This game was about a 95. So not a huge difference and, and a little bit below Phoenix's usual 100, but. I thought the quicker tempo ultimately wasn't effective. It, it benefited Phoenix much more than Dallas. So in my head, I see a lot of small things Dallas can improve at. Monty Williams was, was talking after the game as if – I forget which part of the box score he highlighted, but he was talking as if like he was so encouraged by the offense because he wasn't happy with it. That 121 could have easily been 130-plus. you know. And then on the flip side, um, in terms of – you know, I kind of mentioned – sarcastically earlier, you know, Luca and the misfits, he was happy about 16 assists. You know, that was the number that he focused on in terms of them feeling like, all right, he even admitted, he said, you see a 45 next to a guy's name. And as a coach, you don't like that, but then you kind of gravitate to 16 assists. And and the takeaway of course is like, man, like nobody else got going and and you're going to win that way. Maybe Luca goes for 60. (laughs) Sixty-five, forty-five with with you know twenty assists and who knows? I could be wrong. I just I think very highly of this Suns team and now that Devin Booker is back and they're this deep. Um, again, you know I'm a broken record, but nobody in the league this season was anywhere close to this squad. And I mean, tell me the the weakness. You know what I mean? Tell me which it's you know it's not their 
schematically, it's not there. Coaching wise, it's not there. IQ wise, um, they're a hell of a team. And I think if they don't win the whole thing, it'll be a, a pretty significant disappointment, uh, disappointment for their group. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end it. Like, like I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say those exact words quite as definitively, but I do. And, and I do see a lot of small things Dallas can improve at. I, I just think broadly the Suns have so many answers and that, that the big ways that Dallas would try to solve them would lead them right on to the next one. And, and I so will, I will end on this, Tim Cato. All right. What do you uh, got? I'm going to blame you. Cause you know, your job description is not Mav spokesman by any means, but you wrote in your series preview candidly that, you know, this is a building time for these Mavs. And even the tone that you kind of took in that piece, which I think is on point, indicated the fact that, you know, they hire Nico Harrison to run the front office. They make these trades at the deadline. They send Porzingis to Washington. This was not like the, you know, ramping up for a title run transaction period. This was a, you know, clearing the decks in some spots, figuring out what we have, figuring out what we don't have, what's the best roster possible around Luka Doncic. And so all of that is to say that, you know, if they lose in this series, nobody on the Mavs side is going to be in trouble in terms of job security. Nobody's going to lose any. I mean, they might lose some sleep because they're competitive, but that's just not where they are. And I do think this time of year, NBA playoffs, when you got one team on a mission, the other team, you know, kind of playing with house money, not in the kind of way that, that leads to a, a shocking title run. It's almost like everything's gravy from here. You know, I think that'll probably bear out in where the series goes. Yeah. They want to be competitive. They felt going into the series they could be competitive. You know, people weren't outright predicting wins in the series. That, But, you know, they felt good about things they could do. And they should have. They should have. But the reality around the Mavericks, everybody knows that this wasn't supposed to be the year. That this team still has deficiencies and flaws. And that what they did at the trade deadline was building towards the perfectly realized version of this team that's still a little ways away. So I think that they will adjust some. I think there will be, I, I think I predict game two is more competitive that I, I don't, sure. I don't think we see 20 point swings, but I agree that I saw a lot of stuff from Phoenix that is going to be really hard for this team to counter because again, they're not there yet. To it's, end on a happier note, to show you how highly I think of Luca. You know what else I spent part of the evening researching, Tim, was, and this I'm sure is, you're not only well aware, you might have talked about it on the pod before, but I might have jumped on basketball reference to look at the one and only Michael Jordan and remind myself that he did not get to the NBA Finals until his seventh season. He was 27 years old. And, and you know, he was comparing he and Luca's playoff paths, you know, some early first round bow outs. Um, so, you know, Luca's got time. He, he got that first round kind of grill off his back. And, uh, you know, this one I think is going to be tougher. Yeah. It's just stupid and dumb that Luca is so good that we barely talked about the fact he had 45, 12, and 8 in a postseason. And it just felt normal. Just, just normal. So that's a great place to end. That's a very positive, happy place to end. Dallas, you know. They got that dude. And uh, nobody's taking him away. He's going to be here for a while. We'll be back after game two. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see ya. We play.
plays Fortnite just like me. I am 34. Don't fight the future, honey. Don't fight the future. The future is Luke, a big dick Donjic from the home of Melania Trump. How many kids you have? Don't fight the future. It tears me apart. Don't fight the future. Please be nice to Luca. Future four-time MVP. Oh, my God. Oh! Shut it down! Oh, Let's go home! <laughs> it's a wrap, Doug! Yeah, that is a wrap. <laughs> Woo!